Thanks, uh, thanks, Scott. Uh, good morning. It's good to good to see everybody. Uh, we were we were out last week, and so it feels like a, a little bit of getting reacclimated. Uh, so grateful that you're here. Uh, thanks for making your way through a couple weeks of of spring breaks and travels and, and trips. I'm assuming that a majority of you. Uh, probably were out of town at least some point over the last couple weeks. I know that was the case with our family. I'm really grateful. Scott, thanks for, uh, for preaching last week. Thanks for taking on the, the responsibility of, uh, of study and prep and then engaging uh, God's people with, uh, with preaching. It was a gift to me. It was, uh, it was nice to not have to, uh, to, feel, to feel that for a week, even though I was excited to get back at it. Uh, I want to confess to you that um, our vacation was, was glorious. I mean, I love you, but it was so good to be gone. I just want you to know that. I uh, just want you to really feel the pastoral heart behind that. Uh, we did absolutely nothing, I'm happy to report. Uh, I feel like our vacations, since we had children, have morphed unbelievably. Uh, Sarah and I love to travel. It's one of the things we basically said when we got married, like, um, will you eat ramen? I'll eat ramen as long as we can travel, right? Like that was the thing we wanted to actually be able to do. We met doing missionary work. And so vacations for us used to be this checklist of like we hiked the mountains and we climbed the river. We climbed the rivers. We didn't do that. We, we forged the rivers, right? We, sco- we were scuba diving. We like went to every site, rented the scooters. We did all that. And then now we have three little boys and like our vacations is basically like a contest to see who can move less. Like we, we're playing a completely different sport. The least strokes possible is how it is. And so uh, I, I gloried in the fact that I, was, I slept until 8 o'clock, like four days in a row, which, what? <laughs> like, how does that happen? So anyway, it was, uh, it was a gift. I'm so grateful to get away. Uh, but we are, we're back and we're, we're pumped. I'm I'm thankful. Thank you so much for being, uh, being a church that we can come back to, a place that we can call home, a place that we can be delighted to come and to engage uh, with you. I'm so grateful to come here and, and be here every single week and have you sitting there with your Bibles and saying, let's learn together, let's, let's go to God's Word. Uh, it's a huge gift. I got to reflect on, this, uh, on that over the last couple of weeks, and I just really wanted to say thank you. If you have a Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 21. That's where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, there should be one right in the row in front of you. It's a black, black one there, probably, that you can take with you if you need it. We'd love for you to have access to the Word of God. The goal is not for you to be impressed by oratory. The goal is not for you to say, I have access to God if someone puts it together in rhetoric for me, or if they create an outline. Uh, our desire and our hope is that throughout our times together that you have a hunger and a longing for, for God's word, so that you could meet him. You have access to him. That through the perfect life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, you have access to God, and by his spirit, he will illumine his word to you. And so if you, uh, if you have access or desire to dive into to scripture, we'd love for you to be doing that. Now take a Bible if you need it and, uh, and jump in. We're going to start reading in the first verse of Acts chapter 21. Uh, we've now been in, in this particular book for more than seven months. It has been a gift to us. It's stirred us toward mission. It's made us think about what it looks like for us to give our lives away so that people might know Jesus. And we are going to see much of the same beginning in chapter 21 of the, of the book of Acts. Paul has set his face toward Jerusalem. He is headed toward certain persecution, certain beatings, certain arrest. 
and yet he does not waver. And I'm praying and hoping that God is going to teach us a bit about mission and perseverance and resolve through this text. I'm going to read just through verse 16 of Acts chapter 21, and I'm going to pause there before we go on a little bit later. Let's read together. When he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the, sh- board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am, not, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let me pause there. I want to take a second uh, to pray. And then we'll consider uh, the text together. Father, you're good. Not only are you mighty and powerful and majestic, not only do you dwell in unapproachable light, not only have you done wonderful things, you're perfect in all of your ways, every attribute full of goodness and righteousness, you're worthy of worship, every song is but a murmuring of of your worth. Despite all of the grandness of who you are, that you are attainable, you're here, you dwell in our midst. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit who applies Jesus to us, his work, his righteousness, his standing, the same affection you have for the Son. God, you have that for us this morning. And I'm grateful, God, that we can approach you through your word. Thank you for these texts. Thank you for the example of Paul, who with great resolve sought obedience and mission and and preaching so that he could proclaim Jesus. I pray, God, that as we consider these things together, that you would help us, that you'd guide us, that you'd encourage our hearts. We confess neediness to you. We have not brought 
skill. We have not brought overflowing abundance to your word today. We've brought need and distraction, oftentimes confusion. And so, God, we ask for light. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to try our best to get through most of uh, this Acts chapter 21. And then get on actually a little bit uh, into uh, the next chapter as well. And the thing that I want to point out over this particular section of Scripture is that Paul is basically done with the missionary journeys at this point. At the end of Acts chapter 20, he is making his way back toward Jerusalem, and the end is very, very close. There is basically an eight-chapter swan song for Paul in the book of Acts. Eight full chapters of him marching slowly, going before increasing levels of court authority, describing and witnessing to basically the content of his life, defending his apostleship, defending the fact that he is a, a Jewish Christian. And one of the sections that he retells his story is going to be found in Acts chapter 22. That's in this next section when he arrives in Jerusalem. We're not going to spend a lot of detail on that today because we're going to have at least another instance coming up later in Acts to hear the exact same story. We should probably ask ourselves at a certain point why it is that God intended to put this testimony, Paul's Damascus Road testimony, three times in one particular book. Acts has it at least three different times. But at this particular junction, I want to make the point that Paul is walking with a kind of stubbornness, a kind of unbelievable resolve to finish his mission. And for whatever reason, he believes that his mission is going to include him going back to Jerusalem where the Spirit fell, where the mission of God was launched. He has been a missionary to the Gentiles. He's been a missionary to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he desires to head back and to be faithful in Jerusalem. He's been there previously in Acts chapter 15. There was much controversy. We're going to get to that in a a little bit. But for a moment, I think we should just think about this particular record and the way that it's described by Luke marching on to Jerusalem. Paul's character, his resolve, his desire to obey is really astounding in this particular text. Not once... Not twice, but at least three different times people urge him not to go. Do not go. At the end of Acts chapter 20, when there's that sort of hallmark moment, this weeping and kneeling and praying, you, uh, you heard and probably read and saw last week, there's actually a sense in which the people that Paul has ministered to have to be torn away from him. This is the kind of relationship that he has. And some of that, the sense behind it, is they realize that if Paul leaves, they will never see his face again. In some sense, their affection and love for him is a call for him, do not go, do not go. And then in the text that we just read, we see in verse 4, it says, through the Spirit, they, meaning these Christians that they found at Tyre, were telling Paul, do not go on to Jerusalem. And if, if, if that were not enough, later they come to Caesarea, and they enter the house of this man named Philip, who, Philip, you've seen before, Philip was one of the I made up this word, but he was one of the deacangelists, basically. Remember the, like, the deacon-ish kind of people in Acts chapter 6? And at first you just say, like, we've seen this before. They're deacons. They're supposed to, uh, to wait tables. Except that within a few short chapters, two of those who were separate, or who were separated in Acts chapter 6, become Stephen, 
will have one of the, most, the longest recorded sermons in the book of Acts, and Philip, who becomes an amazing evangelist. The last time we saw Philip, he was, in, he was headed off to Caesarea. This is probably 20 years past the time when he, has been, uh, he had been commissioned as a deacon, as an evangelist. And there in Tyre, we have an interesting detail about his daughters, which we'll come back to in a moment. But for the second time, this dude Agabus shows up, and he says, out of some sort of like amazing prophetic game of charades, right, do not go to Jerusalem. At least in some sense, he gives a prophecy that would seem to indicate, do not go to Jerusalem. After hearing and seeing his charades, the people, it says in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. I think in some sense, this gives us a little bit of humility on Luke's part. Luke is basically saying like, oh yeah, I was... I was, I was one of those. Yeah, I tried, I tried to convince Paul. I said, Paul, do not go. Do not go. Do not go. So I want you to think for a moment. If you've ever had a decision, a situation, a moment in your life where you felt so strongly about something that all of the people who meant the most to you, the people who were weeping or holding your neck, telling you, do not go, People coming and giving prophetic visions of you being bound. Then your traveling companions saying, we think this is a bad idea. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you saying, for whatever reason God is leading me to this, I know that loss is going to come, there's going to be great cost, and yet I'm going to continue walking toward what I believe that God has called me to. In Acts chapter 20, the kind of urgency or the sort of the weight, the burden that Paul is feeling, it says that he was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He was bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The thing that's intriguing about this is that Paul was given the end result. I think a lot of times for us, it's difficult for us to obey and to march forward in mission. Most of the time for us, it's difficult because we don't know the future and we want to control it. Anyone else feel that? You felt the sense before where you're like, I think I know what obedience looks like. I think I know what I need to do. I know what I need to confess. I know what I need to give up. I know where I need to go. And the thing that bothers you in the midst of it is you don't know the end outcome. You think to yourself, I'm not sure where this leads. You're a bit like Abram, who God said, the Lord said to Abram, get up and go to a land that I will show you. You maybe want to argue with God and say, about that showing part, how about we... Why don't we have a conversation about that and then then maybe I'll pack up my family and I'll leave. Paul had a unique circumstance where it wasn't the fact that he did not know it was going to happen. The fear, the potential for him to stop was the fact that he knew exactly what was going to happen. The Spirit told him not only go to Jerusalem but that he was going to be bound. And I wonder if in some sense as he prayed and thought about this particular journey if he thought that God was sort of messing with him. We already know he knew he was going to be persecuted and beat. He was going to find much opposition in Jerusalem. That much was obvious. And then he sends Agabus to come and to give him this word picture, this particular prophecy. And yet there's something in Paul. I think a lot of times when we learn from the life of Paul, what we see from him is this boldness, this ability to to preach the gospel into a million different contexts. He's quoting Greek poets. He's going to the Old Testament. He has amazing skill as a Jewish scholar. Sometimes I think the thing that should be most astounding to us about Paul is his unbelievable resolve 
And in some sense, it's as simple as this. His resolve was simply to obey Jesus. Obedience is simple right up until the point it costs you something. Obedience is absolutely simple right up to the point until you cost, it costs you something. We've learned this in parenting a million times. I talk to my son. I say to him, listen, we need to practice saying no to you. You know why we need to practice saying no to you? Because you are perfectly obedient as long as we're doing exactly what you want. But obedience becomes costly when we say no. It costs you something. And there's something inside of all of us that feel the best of us, in our best moments, that feel like we could be perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous, right up to the point when it begins to cost you something. And what I think we can learn from Paul is his unbelievable resolve to obey, even in the face of adversity and loss. The reason, of course, is that he has found new life. He has a kind of confidence, a security that is not in temporal or not in, in human, it's not in human terms. Philippians chapter 3 and 4 tell us a little bit about his resolve. He said he considered all things lost for the sake of Christ. And that is what is happening with him as he goes toward Jerusalem. I want to note a couple other things about this particular text and this particular journey. It seems to me like Luke is intentionally setting up Paul to walk in the footsteps of another major figure in the New Testament. Do you recall a person who, after finishing his mission, finishing his teaching, finishing his travels, sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and despite the fact that he knows opposition and persecution will come, continues his path? Jesus walked this exact same journey. And I don't believe that Luke is, is doing this as a sort of um, coincidental approach to Paul's march toward Jerusalem. I'm not sure if Paul himself said, I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I'm not sure if God is setting this up. I don't know if Luke is just saying, boy, there's a lot of parallels, and this would help me with some literary, <laughs> some literary problems I'm having in how to organize the book. But it seems like it's too hard to ignore when they plead with him in verses 12 and 13, plead, and he says, Why, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. And at the end of this particular exchange, with much tears and weeping over him going, what do they proclaim? What do they say? Let the will of the Lord be done. This is very much similar to cup passing for me, not my will, but your will be done kind of language. And I think that Luke is intentionally showing us intentionally showing us that Paul is walking a similar journey. This is the same Paul who would later write, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There was a steadfast obedience to God. I think what this shows us is that every single moment when we need to obey, when God calls us to do something, there is going to be a particular lie that you need to choke out. You need, to, you need to preach with your, to yourself with such power and venom at this particular moment. Every single time obedience to mission or call or to the word of God begins to cost you something, here's what you're going to hear inside of your soul. I'm losing something. God is taking from me. You will believe in your heart that there is some other world, some other place, some other thing that would bring you greater joy if you could just have that and obey God. And what you need to find, this is what Paul is relentlessly convinced of. 
that the path of perfect obedience to God and to his will is always the path of greatest joy. It is always. There is no alternate world where you are happier keeping the things that God asks you to give. This should be a massive lesson for us. And if you've never heard the whispers of this particular lie, if you've never heard the particular fears, then you are a kind of supernatural Christian who I do not understand. I don't know. You need to practice this kind of preaching, and I think we ought to learn this from Paul. A couple of the things that I want to point out from this particular section. If we just look at Paul's resolve, is it astounding to you the kind of relationships that Paul has? Do we gloss over it at this point? Are we, that, are we at that point in the book where we're just glossing over? Do you know that within the cor- in the course of about 16 or 17 verses, 13, 14 verses, there are three different instances of people who have a relationship to Paul hugging his neck and weeping? Into, this has turned into a terrible Hallmark movie. God bless my in-laws. <laughs> they, uh, Sarah's parents, every single time I go to their house, they, it's like a, it's a Hallmark movie marathon <laughs> over and over and over again right? Within 18, 16, 17, 18 verses, right? We find three different instances of Paul having the kind of relationships with people in the church where they're embracing him and hugging and crying and weeping. Twice it's pictured on, on, a, on a beach of them kneeling and praying and him being sent off. And I wonder if we can learn from this and ask ourselves what this says about Christian fellowship. We know that in one instance, he spent three years in Ephesus, so that would make sense. I've been here 18 months, and I believe if there was a tearing apart, that I would have a lot of tears. I believe already you can be bound in that particular short of town. I can't imagine at least three years in Ephesus, so that makes sense. We're not sure exactly what's happening We're not sure exactly what's happening in these other places and how much connection he had with them, but enough so that people are weeping and hugging and saying farewell. And I want to say to you that our picture of Christian relationships, of what it looks like to be connected to one another, is often at times, I think, very, very anemic. There's something to be said about this kind of relationship with the people you love and care for and teach and are committed to. If you're honest... If you're absolutely honest, I think that most of us would say that our, our decision or our desire to pastor the church through fellowship groups, asking you, please join a group, be committed to a group of people every single week, don't you sort of think like, oh, that's kind of a lot. Have you never felt that? I co-lead a group and there's times, right, where you're about to go to a group and you say to yourself, like, I love those people, but, but my couch, right? Like, it would be so... It's just like life is so busy, it's so full. It is very easy, it is very, very easy to look at Christian fellowship as some sort of thing that is like an add-on. It's this kind of deep relationship that's sort of like, well, I guess if I get there. And I want to submit to you that this kind of connection to other Christians, the kind that when you leave has them weeping on their knees and hugging your neck, does not happen in 45 seconds around the donut table. Some of you are like, there's donuts? Like, I, hold on a second. I need the, I need the restroom, right? Like, you're going to go check it out. This, this can't happen in superficial, walking by each other sort of relationships. It makes me think that we ought to consider Christian community as a massive part of our existence on this earth. 
The fact that God has given you family, brothers and sisters in Christ, should be a massive tip to you that he desires you to live in community with these people. Especially local church. Especially local church. I think that we could rethink the way that we consider our, our lives and order our lives. If tomorrow any single one of you came to me and said, I'm going to move. I'm uprooting my family. I'm uprooting my life. We're moving from one city to another. And I asked you the reasons why. We would say, education. There's a particular university. I love this school. I've always wanted to go. I need to go and to get this degree. And we think nothing about uprooting and rerouting our lives for education. That's totally normal. If someone came to me and said, I had a great job offer for vocation. I've just always wanted to be in the FBI. They finally called. They finally called. I, I, all of my, my Matlock review website finally paid off. Right? Like, I'm, I've written about crime for, for so long, and they found it, right? And I'm going to move. Vocation is going to move me across the country. We move for family. We move for biological family. In other words, I want to be closer to kids or grandkids or friends or family. And yet I wonder if we consider Christian community, connection, depth in a local church, the fact that you can say, my soul is fed here, I'm stirred, I have a connection with other Christians who know me and speak into my life, I think that we would think it was weird if someone said, why are you in Tallahassee? Oh, my, my church, the people that I love, the people that know me, I have a spiritual connection here to friends and to family, not necessarily because of any organization. It's not the worship band. It's not necessarily some sort of structure or hierarchy or pastor in particular. You know what it is here? I'm loved, I'm known, and people can speak into my life. And if you don't think that's a rare thing, just try moving around a little bit. Some of you are here this morning praying and hoping and have been thinking over the last number of months saying, I really wish that I could get back to that spot when I had great relationships and connection, and depth in Christian community. It is not an easy thing to find. It is not an easy thing to duplicate. And when we have it, when we find it, when we see it, we ought to be working toward it, to cultivate it, to prune it. And it should be a difficult thing for us to let go. I don't mean that you need to be best friends with every single person in your local church. That's impossible, right? And let's be honest, most of you aren't that likable, right? So um, it's like... You just can't have that many friends, right? You just, you just can't. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to love every single person. It does not mean that every hobby should be the same that you're going to hang out. What's, the, what's that phrase? What's the phrase? I don't know half of you half as much as I should and don't like half of you half as much as you deserve or something like that, right? There's a little bit of that reality, I think, in every single existence. And in fact, in a, in a room even this size, there's no way it could happen. But you ought to be praying and thinking you ought to be praying and thinking, God, bring me the kind of people who will weep on my... That was going to sound terribly creepy. Who will, who will want me to stay, who have a real relationship. I was going to say weep on my neck. That's, that's weird. Actually, some singles out there are like, amen, yes. <laughs> God, I'm praying. Somebody to weep on my neck. So you need, you need this kind of depth of relationship, right? This shouldn't be a small thing. Again, I think that a lot of times we think of the Apostle Paul... And we love him for a lot of good reasons, but sometimes the wrong reasons. Why do you love Paul? Well, he accomplished a lot. 
Some of type A personalities are like, now that's a man who could get things done. Planted churches, went to places, didn't get bogged down with all these people, right? Wrong. He loved people and he loved them deeply and they loved him. The other thing that I want to comment about in this particular section of Paul's resolve, his resolve to get to Jerusalem, is that at some point we probably ought to deal with prophecy, right? Like, have we glossed over it enough? Have I promised you? We've, we've read through passages. Agabus showed up before and we just said, I promise uh, we'll get there later. <laughs> like, we've, we've dealt with it sort of peripherally. Peripher- that's a hard word. They should change that word. No one can say it. It's, we've, we've been on it from a glance, tangentially, right? We've come at it from the side. And I just want to spend a couple of moments talking about prophecy. It shows up here in kind of the strangest ways, right? There are times, and I've said it before, where Scripture baffles me, and I'm not sure exactly why there's particular details mentioned. We have this account of him encountering Philip in verse 8, which is an intriguing one, and I think that it's potential that when Luke was gathering information to write the book of Acts, you remember the story before of, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, in this instance of evangelism and him going and saying, saying, do you know what it is that you're reading? It's very, very possible that accounts like that found their way into Scripture because Luke had encounters with Philip and talked to him and said, what has your life been like? What have you been called to do? What does evangelism look like for you? But we also have this interesting description of Philip and his daughters who prophesy. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is an instance where the English translation um, helps us out by saying unmarried daughters. It, it, it basically just means pure. They were virgin daughters who prophesied. And it's all of verse 9. That's all there is for verse 9. It would be difficult, I, I guess difficult, but some people I'm sure could preach a three-part sermon on verse 9. Um, MacArthur could probably preach like 9a and then come back for like 9b. But some of these details I don't understand. Why do we need to know that Philip had four daughters who prophesied? And then leaving them to the side, in the next verse, we find out that Agabus, who apparently comes down and does this prophecy that's really, really strange. It should be noted that prophecy throughout the Bible is often accompanied with charades. Do you remember that? If you read some of the the minor prophets, I was talking to Ferg earlier this morning. He's taking a prophets class right now. It was one of the most difficult classes probably of all seminary for me. It's like all the names keeping them straight. Where were they? And was, was this the double curse or the single curse that he was calling down? I can't keep them straight. But one of the things that you recall from prophecies is that God often called prophets to give a message and to act it out. God knows that we are a feeble people who need word and picture oftentimes to get the idea. It's one of the reasons we come to communion every single week. It's a picture of Christ's body, his blood being given and shed for us. Isaiah, you recall, actually had to get naked in order to get the prophecy across. There were times when prophecy would include the prophet laying still for seven days in a town square as if dead. And in this particular instance, Agabus takes Paul's belt, probably a sash kind of thing. He binds his hand and his feet and he says, through the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of of the Gentiles. Previous to that, so not only do these, prof- these daughters prophesy, but Agabus seems to prophesy. And before that, in verse 4 of Acts chapter 21, we get this little phrase, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, the people at Tyre 
were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. The thing that's intriguing about this is that the Old Testament version of prophecy seems to carry forward into the New Testament at least in some, some semblance of, uh, of consistency. There's a little bit. Of course, we know that it's not exactly the same because in the Old Testament, people would be stoned. There were strict laws about false prophets. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament and you said, thus says the Lord, and you said something and it did not come true, you would be killed. And we want to say unequivocally that that kind of truth-telling, the way that God spoke to his people and instructed them, is not the way that prophecy is used in the New Testament. I think we can get that clearly from the book of Hebrews, for instance. Hebrews says, in former days, he spoke to us through the prophets, right? Nowadays, he has spoken to us through his Son. We interpret everything through Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, interpreting Jesus to us. But that does, mean, does not mean that we should go through our New Testament and everywhere that we find the word prophecy or prophet sort of just scribble it out. I think a lot of times functionally, especially in a conservative Christian church, our definition and the way we handle prophecy is to just basically ignore it. Is that, is that fair? We ignore it or we sort of neuter it down to some sort of like, well, it's like when your pastor teaches a Sunday school class, Right? And I just want to say to you that it does not seem to me like we can neuter it down that much from the New Testament. There is something going on here, and God moves people at times to speak in an authoritative way, in accordance with his will, a particular word in season, a particular kind of of powerful teaching that intends to give direction. It is not infallible, and I think that we can wrestle with that even in this particular text. But I want, you to sh- I want you to think about the fact that prophecy is not done away with in the New Testament. I'm going to roll through a few different verses for you to look at this. It's something for you. We can't make a complete deep dive here into it, but it's something for us to wrestle, wrestle with at least a little bit. In Acts chapter 2, in this exact same book, the first instance of prophecy coming up is nothing, none, none other than a quote from the Old Testament. The promise of the Holy Spirit coming, according to Joel, was this, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The spirit comes, applies the work of Jesus to us. We got that much clear. We love that work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and brings comfort. We love the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's a ton of doctrine about this. The Holy Spirit comes and gives gifts to his church. We love the gifts that God gives through the Holy Spirit. And yet I think oftentimes we don't know exactly what to do with the fact that when the Holy Spirit comes, according to Acts 2.17, taken from Joel, sons and daughters, it says, will prophesy. Later, this is Romans chapter 12, verse 6. In a list of gifts that Paul's writing, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. And I think this is a, a particularly good one for the way that Paul interacts with all of these people speaking into his life at this particular time. 19 to 21 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. 
I think we have an example of that kind of testing of prophecy and a particular way that it could be used in this, in this section. God is not confused. You remember what I said earlier in Acts chapter 20? It says that Paul is bound by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem. He's bound by the Holy Spirit on this mission to go to Jerusalem no matter what the cost will be. And yet we also see in verse 4 of Acts chapter 21 that somehow through the Spirit, these people are telling him, don't go. Agabus is coming and saying, oh, by the way, you're going to be bound exactly like this. And then Luke, his traveling companions, and everyone is saying, please don't go. I think what's happening here is that people are being moved and giving correct vision. In other words, I think Agabus is correct. This is going to happen. Paul's going to be arrested. He's going to be imprisoned. He's going to spend a much of the majority of the rest of his life basically imprisoned as a slave behind bars. The issue is a matter of interpretation, right? Paul sees the same vision. He knows he's going to be arrested. He's going to be bound. He's going to spend the rest of his life in suffering. He interprets the prophecy as, so what, I must go. The Christians who are with him see the same exact prophecy, and they interpret it as, so you must run away and stop. Don't go to Jerusalem. The issue, the problem here, or the confusion, is not in the fact that this particular prophecy or word or vision or whatever you want to call it is wrong. It's the fact that our interpretation is often wrong. And we, gotta, we have to bring a kind of humility to the way that we deal with, I think God is, is saying this in a particular moment. Now, I think for most of us, the way this works out, because we understand in humility that we need our minds to be transformed by the renew, be renewed in our minds, that we don't know the will of God, the fact that oftentimes we're mistaken and confused and distracted, the fact that we've seen prophecy done so poorly, there are people who set up shop. You know, the only thing you need to, to, to do to be a prophet is like buy a sign, right? Get a business card. Tomorrow, I'm launching an international ministry of Prophet Lance Holum, right? There's, a, there's been use of prophecy, especially in New Testament church over the last couple thousand years, that is basically just full of charlatans. It's like, if you believe that prophecy is something that God has given you and everyone else just needs to be quiet and get out of my way, then I believe that you are in, you're in complete rejection of New Testament use of prophecy. Everything is to be tested. And f- so for a majority of us, we don't say things like, I have a prophecy for you. Not only would you sound weird, but it just seems sort of arrogant and proud, right? Really what we're saying is, I have a direction. I have, I have a sense that wisdom is telling me because of what I know about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, because of what I know about the world and about you, this is what seems right. I think for a lot of us, what would be basically just wise counsel, advice, could probably loosely fit underneath this category of prophecy. So long as we also have a category for prophecy where the work of the Holy Spirit actually moves someone to speak a particular word or an encouragement in season that directs and gives movement to either a person or a church or a place. The idea here is not that Agabus is speaking scripture. He's not infallible. And the interpretation of his prophecy is certainly not infallible, which is why Thessalonians tells us, test everything. Test everything. We have a standard now by which to test everything. Is it in accordance with scripture? I think for the most part, that is how prophecy is used in the New Testament. 
All that to say, I think it's okay for us to have another reason that we ignore prophecy is that it doesn't fit into neat boxes for us very often. It just doesn't fit in a box. Everything that I want, would want to tell you about prophecy, here's my list of things that I would say about prophecy. I cannot check every box and make every single thing neat. What about this instance? And what about this person? And what about that? Surprise, the Christian life takes wisdom and trust and dependence. And there will be a lot of things that we simply do not know about the way that God works with his people. I do know that every single thing that we hear, we must We must take things that seem like murmurings, seem like they're uttered sort of in darkness and shrouded, and we must bring them to the light of God's word and test them. But in the end of that, we can hold fast to what is good. Some people have said that in this instance, though the content of the prophecy was the same, that the Christian's response was a natural response. Paul, we want you to live. We like you breathing and upright with all of your limbs, right? Paul's response was supernatural, Because he was given a sense by the Holy Spirit to go. I want to read one more section of Scripture. We'll just comment on it briefly before we we sort of end this particular section. Let's look at verse 17 of Acts chapter 21. Not only is Paul resolved to go to Jerusalem, but when he shows up, we find that he interacts with them in in a particularly interesting way. He has what we might call wise freedom. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. I'm going to pause then and give you the spoiler at the end. Uh, It doesn't work. Some Jews come from Asia, probably unbelieving Jews who had rejected his message in Asia. He gets arrested. Everything goes crazy. He has to be carried out by Roman law, by Roman soldiers, basically. They come in and they say, what is going on? This man is about to be lynched, basically, here in the midst of this mob. And a couple of things I want to note in particular about this Section that seems a little bit confusing. Why in the world does this matter? What is Paul doing other than paying for haircuts for some of his friends, right? He, he pays for a salon visit for at least four of his, his friends. And he takes part in this particular purifying ritual. And there's some section when I'm reading this, and I want to say to myself, what in the world is happening here? And what is Paul doing? And how am I to interpret it? I think what it gives us is a fascinating backdrop on Paul's use of his freedom. He has wisdom in the way that he is free. He has Christian liberty, but he is not bound by his 
liberty. And here's what I mean. Do you remember the last time he was in Jerusalem? He went for the Jerusalem council. He's opposing Peter to his face, saying, we are not under the law. Stop making the Gentiles be circumcised. They do not need to follow Jewish rules and rituals and customs. And then six chapters later, he goes back into Jerusalem and he's like, where's the purification rites and how do I shave my head and where should I go? I want to make sure that they know that I'm in observance of the law. And it seems aimless. It seems crazy. It seems pragmatic. It seems like, what are you doing, Paul? And I think what it's showing us is that Paul has a kind of freedom from the law. He has a kind of Christian liberty that gives him an ability to step away even from his liberties if it gives him an ability to preach Christ. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Actually, he probably wrote this at least a year, maybe a couple years before this incident in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll just read 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Win more of them. I think that's the key. Those who are Christians and have come out of Judaism, he says to them, you are not under the law. Stop giving this as a burden around the necks of people. But to those who are still under the law and not in Christ, he says, I'm going to make myself a servant to them so that I might win more of them. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I'm just going to stop there. Paul is faced with a dilemma. He has made a case. He's made a ruckus. He said, this is what it means to be free in Christ. To the Galatians, he would write, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. And he comes to Jerusalem, and yet he finds himself in a sticky situation where it seems like the only way that he can see to have a hearing, have a relationship with James and the church that's there, and to have a hearing with more Jews who need to hear the gospel is for him to go into the temple, to, be, to go through purification rites, and to prove that he is not out to undermine the law. A lot of people have speculated on this. Was this capitulation from Paul? Was this fear? Some people have flat out said this was a mistake, which would be okay. Paul's not infallible. Scripture does not, does not give us a narrative of Paul's life to say, do every single thing he does. Scripture is not all prescriptive. It's descriptive in a lot of ways. It's possible that he made a mistake. It's possible that he caved, that he got to Jerusalem and all the pressure got to him and he said, James, I want to respect you. Others think, though, that this is simply Paul having a willingness to flex on matters that are indifferent so that he would have an opportunity to reach more of his kinsmen who do not know Jesus. You can find quotes and commentaries and scholars on both sides of this particular issue. You might be thinking to yourself, well, what do we think? <laughs> what, do, what do I think? I think because Paul writes so powerfully things like we just read in 1 Corinthians 9, because Paul has been so willing to flex on things that don't matter to him, I don't think this is a mistake, though I will say that he probably stressed about this more than we would want to let on. It's probably not a simple decision. 
I can actually imagine a scenario where maybe he's walking all the way up to the point where there's supposed to be sacrifices given and the blood being shed, and maybe he would have just cast everything off and stood up on a soapbox and said, let me tell you about the blood of Jesus, right? I mean, maybe, I don't know. We don't know the rest of his plan. God sovereignly intervenes and gets him arrested, right? Before that takes place. I think this what this tells us is that a majority of Christian life is not going to be as simple as we want it to be. It is simply not going to be easy. We thought we had it settled. We're not under the law. We're not under Jewish custom anymore. That does not save us. And so every situation is going to be easy, right? Wrong. It's not the way life is. You can start off, you can take an initiative with something and have the purest of motives and the purest of intentions and everything can be clear. And then you find yourself in a situation and you say, I never imagined this. There's a time in my life where I just said, like, I will not touch alcohol. I never will touch alcohol, period. I just will not when I'm underage. This isn't working. And then I find myself with a missionary saying, we're going to walk into this guy's house and you're going to drink his vodka now. I say to him, what do I do? Like, I'm free. I'm not supposed to. But I, so I'm free to down that vodka, right? I think there's a sense in which there's a temptation for all of us in this moment when the complexity of life hits. We want to make rules. That's what we want. We just want to make rules for things. Here's the way the Christian life works. Here's the way music works. These are the movies I see. These are the people that I talk to. This is the places that I go. Here's what we do about this particular instance. And I think that in the midst of that, we desire over and over and over again to find security in our freedom. Maybe we have freedom from all of the social norms of Christianity. And listen to whatever music I want. I'm going to go get a growler from this beer place because I'm free in Jesus, right? The question is not, are you free to do what you want to do in opposition to culture? Are you free enough, though, to abstain as well? I think that's what Paul is having to wrestle with here. His decision is not simple. And oftentimes, our immediate temptation is just make a rule. Let's make a rule for everything. And I know that you've lived this. Is your workplace not full of policies that are in place as an attempt to simplify every single situation that could happen. One guy one time blew up the toaster. No more food in the break room, right? And you're like, you're like, what? I lived this as a middle school pastor. The, the number of rules I made when I first became a, a high school and middle school pastor, I was like, I'm not going to be one of those guys with all these rules. We're just going to be cool. We're going to hang out. And then I realized, like, the kids would find unbelievable scheming ways to be bad. <laughs> and then I just made all these rules, right? You find yourself in a situation where the rules don't even make sense. This basically justifies the entire existence of the TSA, right, at the airport. I used to have one of those little, little laptops. You know what I mean? Like the kind that were like, uh, what do they call them? They were like netbooks, notebook kind of thingies, you know, netbooks. And I went through the, the airport, and one time the TSA guy made me, like, tear apart my whole bag, put that computer through the machine, right? And then I got an iPad, and I went back later. It was actually bigger than the little netbook that I had. And I get up to the thing, and I start tearing it apart, and the TSA guy lectures me and says, like, you don't need to take an iPad out of your bag. It's not a computer. Don't put that through the machine. And I thought to myself, like, where did this policy come from? There's something about having a keyboard, apparently, that's, like, dangerous, right? It's the same thing as a computing device with a battery and a screen, but it's a, it's a policy, right? They just made a rule. That's just simple. We just, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to carve out every problem. Surprise, life is not like that. 
And I think it's intentionally not like that because God draws us back to dependence on him and to wisdom. God wants you to make righteous and wise decisions dependent on the Holy Spirit, not automatic perfunctory decisions based on a set of rules that you have determined make up the Christian life. I think a lot of times this robs the entire life of our Christianity from us. We think that people reject religion because they're sinners and they don't want to be holy. Sometimes people reject religion because it seems so lifeless and automatic. Every decision seems like it's black and white and cut and dried. There's no life in someone to say, I'm wrestling with the realities and complexities of life. Yeah, this is what real, real Christian life is like. You know what real Christian life is like? Making a huge scene about being free from the law and then going back and saying, here I am shaving my head. Jesus is what matters. The law of love is what matters, not the list of rules that we create. That's why in Romans 14 he can write, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, especially over matters of eating and drinking let me give you a couple of things to consider as we go. This is what I've been wrestling with over this week in this text. I want to resolve to meet each and every day with a willingness to obey God's call no matter what the cost to me. I think that's what we're learning from Paul. Every single morning to wake up, God, whatever the cost today, whatever today brings, I want obedience. Simple, heartfelt obedience. I also want to resolve to not believe that life is simple and black and white and flat all the way through. I want to be dependent on the Holy Spirit in every situation to say, God, how can I love my neighbor best? Not how can I be most comfortable with the things that I believe to be right or wrong. I want to resolve to reject a lie that there's greater joy in preserving things that God asks me to give. At the end of the day, I want to resolve that I use my freedom well, not to, not to make myself more happy, but to let my freedom in Christ be a vehicle, an engine to preach the gospel like Paul does in Jerusalem. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for these texts of scripture and thank you for the gift that it is that you've given prophecy. You've given, not only have you given prophecy, but you've given us a word to test it by. Thank you that we can come to you in humility, knowing that our interpretations will often be false and wrong. I pray, God, that in the midst of of living, that we would ask you for wisdom and discernment in any given instance. Help us to have, have nuance and compassion, complexities of life. And God, I pray that at the end of the day, like Paul, we would offer all of who we are to you so that some may know Jesus. We ask for that in Jesus' name.